England. This evening we'll be studying together verses 1 to 19. In the three different uh, <coughs> sermons that we'll take to go through this psalm, we've divided the psalm roughly into three sections. And the title on each occasion will be The God Who. And tonight our theme is The God Who Rescues. The God Who Rescues. Well, it often seems that the same videos get pushed at us, uh, advertised to us to watch on social media over and over again. Maybe some of you have had that experience. It just really wants you to watch some particular video. Uh, One video that was pushed at me yet again last week, uh, which I have watched in the past, was a video with a title along the lines of uh, Dads Being Heroes. It's a compilation of heart-stopping pieces of footage, the sort of stuff from parents' nightmares of children in terrible danger and at the last possible moment their their father grabs them or covers them or throws them in some cases out of the way of danger and maybe there's oncoming traffic or maybe they're about to fall from some great height and the father at the very last second rescues them what strikes you in this video is the sudden surge of adrenaline and the the natural instincts that obviously take over in the the parent and not thinking any more about their own well-being, only thinking about getting the child to safety. And perhaps there's something in us that likes to see, think of the amount of movies and even music that centres upon it. We like to see someone being rescued. Well, Psalm 18 is a psalm about being rescued. It's a milestone psalm in David's life. The title of the psalm tells us that. And as I mentioned earlier, you can turn to, I can't remember if I said 1 Samuel, maybe it should have been 2 Samuel 22. And it's coming towards the end of the record of David's life uh, in 2 Samuel. If you take it along with uh, what you find um, afterwards in 1 Kings, David's life uh, soon comes to a close in those passages. And we don't know exactly when he wrote it, but perhaps David was writing it towards the end of his life. Looking back on all the victories that God had given him, in particular the victory over King Saul and the long reign and the many victories that God gave him as king of Israel. David would have been, was indeed seen as a mighty man, a king who had rescued his nation many times. And yet this psalm shows us that David's perspective was that he had needed rescued by his God many times. Charles Spurgeon says this psalm is the song of a grateful heart overwhelmed at the manifold and marvellous mercies of God. He says, if you know Jesus, you will readily find him in his sorrows, deliverance and triumphs all through this wonderful psalm. (coughs) If we have eyes to see him, Spurgeon says, Christ is all through Psalm 18. In David's experiences, we have a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the son of David's experiences. In David's rescue, we have a picture of how Jesus was himself eventually rescued by his father and how Jesus can extend rescue to us as well. And that's what the first main section of the psalm is all about, the God who rescues us. What do you see, first of all, this evening, personal affection for the God who rescues Personal affection for the God who rescues. David begins the psalm with a beautiful, instinctive declaration of his personal love for Yahweh, his God. If you look at verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. 
Second uh, Samuel 22 is almost identical to Psalm 18, but one interesting difference is that this uh, personal outburst of affection is not there at the beginning of Second Samuel 22. It's almost as if David finished the psalm and looked at it and thought, no, this needs a bit more personal, uh, more of a personal expression of my love and my devotion and my delight in my God. The word for love there is actually quite rare in the Old Testament, this particular word. In fact, this is the only time that I could see in the whole book of Psalms that anyone says, I love you, O Lord. One writer describes it as an impulsive and emotional word. Look how David describes this Lord that he loves, verses 2 and 3. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield, (coughs) the horn of my salvation, (coughs) my stronghold. Nine times David, in some fashion, describes his God as my God, his God. David has personal affection, personal experience of God as his deliverer and his rescuer. Verses 1 and 2, David focuses on God's protection on the battlefield. Notice the language there, shield, horn, deliverer. Those are all military words. David essentially never lost a battle in his whole life. He was the undisputed champion of the world, you could say, in his time. But again, his perspective is that it wasn't any military cunning or prowess on his part. It was God who rescued him. The other place where David particularly remembers God's protection is in the wilderness. And again, as we mention often as we study the Psalms, it's important to remember the, the amount of years that David spent in the wilderness running from Saul. And again, he says, in those times, God was my refuge. God was my means of rescue. He was my hiding place. And verse 3 gives us the sense that David still Depends on God regularly, constantly for rescue. Verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. (coughs) Imagine if you were at the beach and you went for a swim in the ocean. I don't know why anybody would do that in Northern Ireland because it's too cold. But imagine you did and imagine you got in trouble. You get stuck in a, (coughs) a riptide or unable to get back to shore for some reason. And some stranger, someone you don't know at all, jumps in and rescues you. Well, when it's all over, you would want to know all about that person, wouldn't you? You want to thank them. You want to know their name. You want to ask, how come you were even here? Um, How come you were at the beach? How did you see me? How did you get me out? You want to know who rescued you. David knows who rescued him. And he loves him for it. In verses 4 to 5, David very graphically describes just how close to death he has been. He says, The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. Sheol is the grave. It's not necessarily heaven or hell. Most commentators agree that it's, it's just the grave. It's, it's your death place. And David says, He came so close so many times. It was like his grave was 
was reaching out for him, trying to cling to him and pull him in. But God saved him. God delivered him from death itself. And David has personal affection for the God who has rescued him time and time again. If you're a Christian here this evening, you know the one who has rescued you. And what a deep and joyful and overwhelming love you should feel for your rescuer. You spend time each day with him in his word to find out more about him. You take his words to heart in the way we considered this morning from Ezra. Studying them and doing them and telling others about them. Perhaps you feel ensnared or surrounded by some difficulty or anxiety tonight as a new week begins. Perhaps though you're a Christian with your sins forgiven, you still feel the the pressure of your enemies or your own weak flesh tempting you back into sin. Dear friend, remember he who is with us is greater than any who are against us. Jesus has already rescued us from the grave. He's already rescued us from uh, from not rather from the grave, but from, uh, from, from spiritual death, from hell, for the punishment that our sins deserved. He's rescued us from that. There's nothing else that he can't help us with or rescue us from today. And so we should say with David, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you for all you've given to me in Christ. I love you, Christ, for the lengths you went to at the cross so that I could be saved. I love you for taking that weight of my sin upon yourself and for the wonderful inheritance I have in eternity. I love you for the constant refuge and hiding place and shield that you are in my life. Each week as we gather for worship, we have an opportunity, friends, to publicly express our personal affection for the God who rescues. David, as he was confronted with difficulty and danger and even death, he says in verse 6, In my distress, I called upon the Lord to, to who? To my God, I cried for help. Do you need to do that at this moment in time? If you've been worrying and anxious and even tearful this week and yet not brought it to the Lord, it's nothing in your life. Maybe you think other people think that's so small. Maybe you think God's not going to care about this particular matter that I have to deal with. Not true. There's nothing in your life that could cause you anxiety that God will not want to hear about in prayer. Some of you can remember crying out to God for the very first time. Calling upon him in that first realization of your need of salvation. And he answered you and he has continued to, call, to answer you. Ever since. Maybe you need to cry out for the very first time today. You've been trying to look after yourself. Trying not to worry. Trying to be good enough or strong enough on your own. But in your more honest moments you know that you need to be rescued. You have a sense that you can't go on the way that you are. In your sin and in your worries. If you're in distress today, dear friend, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ who rescues from sin and death. It's a personal affection for the God who rescues. Secondly, dramatic descriptions of the God who rescues. Dramatic descriptions of the God who rescues. If you look, look at the psalm in verse 7, the whole tenor of it changes. 
And what we have from verses 7 to 15 are two or three pictures describing God's response to his servants' difficulties and his servants' uh, enemies. And these are powerful images. These images are supposed to be striking. They're supposed to uh, stick in the mind as we read them. Verse 7 says, The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. The anger of God, David says, touches down on, on the earth itself. It has an impact on the physical world itself. In verse 8, it's almost like David describes God like a, some sort of fire-breathing creature. He says, smoke went up from his nostrils, verse 8, devouring fire from his mouth. In Hebrew, the word nostrils is often associated with anger. We talk today about someone's nostrils flaring, widening, because they're angry. You know, they're taking a big inhale of breath and they're about to unleash, perhaps, on you or someone else. And then verses 9 to 12, the picture changes again. And and this time David pictures God coming like a storm from heaven. Verse 9, he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Verse 11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Describes God's response to David's enemies as hail and coals of fire raining down on them. Again, these are striking pictures. They are bringing home for us, friends, the holiness of God and perhaps the holy wrath of God. This is God's anger on the enemies of David, those enemies who would make life difficult for God's people, who would attack the church. This is God's wrath let loose. Now, you might be thinking, when did this happen exactly? At what point during David's life Did God come down like a storm or like a fiery beast and destroy David's enemies? Well, you won't find anything like this happening in 1st or 2nd Samuel or Kings or Chronicles, the books that record the events of David's life. But there are other situations recorded in Scripture that very much fit with this description of God's judgment and God's rescue of his people. Think particularly of how he saved his people out of Egypt. Think of the plagues God sent. Heal, fire, darkness, death. Think of the scene at the Red Sea. I don't know about you, but I often forget as as you try to, if it's possible, visualize that in your mind's eye. You know, the people walking through and the and the walls of water either side of them. I often forget that there was the pillar of fire between them and the Egyptians. Fire right beside water and the darkness that would have come from the, from the water rising up around them and the glory clouds. And then think of the scene at Mount Sinai. Not a, not a time of judgment, but a time emphasizing to the people the holiness of their God. Exodus 19 verse 16 On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. 
The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. See how similar the language is there from, to, to what David is writing in, in Psalm 18. So why does David use this same kind of language to describe him, himself being rescued by God? Well, friends, it's a statement of faith. David's saying that he believes that the same holy God of the Exodus and of the Red Sea and of Mount Sinai, that that God who has saved his people in the past and has displayed his glory and his holiness in the past, that God is perfectly capable of rescuing his people again today if rescue is needed. That God is still able to dramatically save his servants whenever and however he wishes. One writer says, See how prayer moves earth and heaven and raises storms to overthrow in a moment the foes of God's people. David's saying, if I needed it, if I really needed it at any time in the battlefield, I believe that this God could bring this kind of rescue. One of the biggest problems we have as comfortable Western Christians is that we do not often enough or closely enough consider the holiness of God. You can find plenty of sermons and sermon series on the internet about uh, 10 steps to being good parents or how to have a good marriage or how to be good evangelists. And all of those things are important and have their place. But oftentimes it's how-tos and it's worldly wisdom repackaged for the church. And we do not often enough consider, friends, the holiness of God. His utter purity, his hatred of sin, the wrath of God that sin invites. And yet at the same time, this almighty, all-powerful God of the clouds and the smoke and the hail and the fire. He is willing to hear the prayers of weak little people like you and me. When we're worried about the cords of death. Pulling us in. When you make your prayers, Christian friend, each day, this is the God that you're praying to. When you're in distress, this is the God who is on your side. When you lack assurance, when the evil one is tempting you, this is the God who will be your fortress, your refuge, and will not allow Satan to destroy you. When Jesus Christ went into the darkness of God's judgment and wrath on the cross, as he in that moment became sin for us, friends, what happened? Matthew 27, verse 51, we read it earlier. The earth shook and the rocks were split. For three hours, darkness came down to Calvary, the darkness of God's judgment. And similarly here, David says, the earth reeled and rocked and quaked. Because he was angry. Before God the Father rescued his son from the grave. Before he took Jesus up from the cross to heaven. And then raised his body up on the third day. Before Jesus was rescued friends. He was judged. He experienced the full force of the fiery wrath of God on sin. Our sin. Placed on Christ's shoulders. As Christ died on the cross. The earth reeled and rocked and quaked because God's anger was being expended. But because of that, we can be rescued. Is that not enough to humble us? 
Is that not enough for us to sing out in praise, I love you, O Lord, my strength? Does that not make us rejoice in the dramatic rescue that Jesus Christ has provided for us? And knowing that he has gone through all of that for us and rescued us and forgiven us, does that not motivate us to come in prayer? Yes, in reverence, yes, in humility, but also with boldness and confidence. Asking for whatever new rescue we might need. Dramatic descriptions of the God who rescues. The personal affection for the God who rescues. And thirdly and finally, the delight God takes in providing rescue. The delight God takes in providing rescue. The stranger who saves you at the beach does so out of human compassion and sympathy. There's no good reason for him not to rescue you. You haven't offended him or attacked him in any way. You're a fellow human being in need and so he helps. We were entirely undeserving of God rescuing us. We have done wrong against God. We have rejected the one who is perfectly good And followed after what is totally wicked. We've held back worship from the one who deserves it. And we have given worship to uh, and our affection to passing pleasures and trivial treasures. And when we have actually come to to worship God often we've done it half-heartedly. And so we have offended the holy God who made us. So why should he rescue us? Look at verse 19. He rescued me because he delighted in me. It could also be translated because he took pleasure in me. He rescued me because he took pleasure in me. Now consider for a moment who could God the Father have possibly ever said that about? Who who pleased him perfectly? Who offered him perfect worship? Only the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what the voice from heaven said about Jesus at his baptism. Matthew three seventeen. This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. I take delight and pleasure in him. God the Father delighting in God the Son. Our substitute saviour. And so in one sense we can explain our salvation. Because God the Father sent God the Son. And God the Son has Uh, covered over our sin with his own perfect righteousness. And so if we are in him, God takes pleasure in us through Christ. And yet in another sense, friends, God's, in another sense, that doesn't fully answer the query. God's delight in us to file selfish sinners that we were is something that we can't fully explain. Why did he choose to provide Christ at all? All we can say is God loves me because he loves me. Because he wants to. Because he takes pleasure in it. Spurgeon says, why Yahweh, why God should delight in us is an answerless question. A mystery which angels cannot solve. But that he does delight in us is certain. I don't know why <laughs> But he does. I don't fully know why God has rescued me from my sin. But I know know that he has. And I know that he was pleased to do it. 
And we will spend eternity celebrating that great truth. Look what else David says about his rescue. Verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. And then he says in verse 19. He brought me out into a broad place. Brought me out into a broad place. And once again there, perhaps David is looking back to what God had done for his people long ago. Not just bringing them out of Egypt, the place of danger and death, but bringing them into a far better place, the promised land, a broad place. That means a place with plenty of scope and plenty of blessings and plenty of everything. Place of blessing. Friends, this is what we have in Christ. Rescue in the fullest sense. Not merely being taken out of danger. But being taken to a place of blessing. That not only are we now part of the family of God and the body of Christ, the church. But we will one day be in the new heavens and the new earth. That promised land that is waiting for all of us who belong to Christ. See, the best rescues are not just about being taken away from the place of danger, but being brought into the place of blessing. That's why in the movies, um, probably at this point, judging by the number of people who have now seen it, probably quite a few of you here have seen Top Gun Maverick. Great film. Can't stand over everything in it, of course, but really good story, really good film. And without spoiling anything, if you haven't managed to see it yet, um, of course, there's a big epic scene of, of danger and of action and, and of rescue. But the very final scene, the very final clip of the movie, the very final footage that you see is of a broad place. Not just being taken away from the place of danger, but enjoying a place of beauty and of blessing. And that speaks to us because that's what all of us need by nature. We need Rescue, not just from our sins, not just from the grave and from death, but to be with Christ and to enjoy the place that he is going to bring us to forever. That's what lies ahead if you're a Christian. And that's what should keep us going in our Christian faith. We experience many blessings now, but we also continue to deal with many difficulties now. And again, maybe for you this evening, it feels like the cords of Sheol are wrapping around you. Maybe you're experiencing acute pain or difficulty this week, exhausted from your responsibilities as a a parent or a worker, living with physical pain, perhaps put under pressure or, or ridiculed for your faith by family or colleagues. Perhaps just living with the, the limitations that come with older age. No matter what your situation today, Christian, our best days are still ahead of us. Because in Christ we have a glorious inheritance. We have a broad place. The new heavens and the new earth waiting for us. And it's all been made possible because of the rescue that Jesus Christ has provided for us. The God who created the heavens and the earth has literally moved the heavens and the earth to save you from your sins. The earth has reeled and rocked. The fire of God's judgment has been poured out, not on us who deserved it, but on our rescuer, the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. 
And so even as we wait to arrive in the broad place, the place free of all trial and struggle and sin, friends, let's praise and worship the one who has rescued us simply because he delighted in us. Personal affection for the God who rescues, dramatic descriptions of the God who rescues, and the God who has rescued us simply because it gave him delight. Amen.